All right. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I trust you're well. And if you're not well, I trust that you would reach out to us and let us know what it is that we can do to help you out. It's difficult for us not to be together, of course. As you might imagine, a lot happens in a congregation of our size when we aren't able to keep track of one another as well. We try to keep up on things through technology, and we're grateful for that. Um, but just to make sure you know what's happening, I want to give a few announcements. Justin and Rachel's baby decided that he had waited long enough. And Phineas James was born ahead of schedule, at least ahead of the doctor's schedule, March 26th in Florida. And the family will remain in Florida for a couple of weeks, and then they'll be making their way home. Chris and Suzanne like, likewise have uh, some good news to share with us. The birth of their grandson, Camden, born that same day, March 26. I think he also was a little early in Mobile, Alabama. John Seavey had surgery in Philadelphia, a successful lung surgery, and he is prayerfully, by the time you hear this, home. Uh, the, the latest was that he had a bit of a complication, might have to spend an extra day, but the surgery went well. We're grateful for that. Vern Sprague is a name that some of you will remember from United Baptist Church years past, um, others from time spent at Machias Valley Baptist. Vern Sprague finished his course in this life and passed on uh, to be with the Lord. So we remember these folks in prayer today, in prayers of thanksgiving, in prayers for healing, and prayers for comfort, respectively. Now, before I get to the message, I, I want to share a couple of thoughts about the times. Strange times these are, unique times, unprecedented in my life. I'm sure they're unprecedented in yours as well. So, I have in my hand, and just in case the video doesn't come through, or in case we decide not to use the video, because this could just absolutely be dreadful, um, and we just post an audio, I'll describe this, what I have in my hands for you. It's a yellow bottle, it's small enough for me to hold in my hand, it's made of plastic, it's yellow, there's a little logo on the side of it, it says Hannaford, and uh, that's because I'm too cheap to buy the good stuff, and some of you will know what this is that I'm holding, you're all over it, you say, that is a bottle of mustard. Well, it is a mustard bottle, I know it's a mustard bottle, and I think that it's a bottle of mustard, but... Well, I hope it's a bottle of mustard. I'm going to put it on my red hot dogs. The only way I'm going to know if this is a bottle of mustard, though, is to open the top and give it a squeeze. Once I give it a squeeze, we'll see what comes out. I'm not going to do that right here. I want to make this point to you. The way that we know what's inside is by what comes out when it's squeezed. And you're being squeezed, and I'm being squeezed. What's coming out? Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is, whatever is truly in our hearts is what comes out in what we say and how we respond to life. So our words and our actions in these trying times are most absolutely going to reveal what's inside of us. will reveal our true faith or a lack of it. I've been reading a lot lately, and probably you have too, 
a book that I have just picked up by a great author named Elise Fitzpatrick is Idols of the Heart, Learning to Long for God Alone. And on page 43 of that book, she writes, In the face of adversity, when it seems as though everything you've worked for is about to go up in smoke, when the kids are ill or the bottom falls out of your business or the church is in turmoil, the bottom line questions have to be the following. Do you trust God? Do you believe that he's wise, good, and powerful enough to perform all his will and bring you and your family safely to him? Can you hear him saying to you, I am God Almighty. In these times, when disease exposes the frailty of our human strength, limits of good medicine, and the insufficiency of a government that's doing its best, do you hear him saying, I am God Almighty? Christian, you are being squeezed. Be sure that what's coming out of you in this time of inconvenience, which may very well turn into a time of suffering, reflects gratitude to God for all that you do have and a deep abiding faith that's coupled with a calm assurance that no matter what's happening or what may come, God is in control. Would you pray with me? Father, with grateful hearts, we turn to you this morning imperfectly worshiping in an imperfect world. And God, while we long to be together, we are thankful for the gift of technology that allows us to be connected, even when apart. And as we turn our attention now to your word, Lord, speak to us in your timeless truth. Meet us where we are, we pray in Jesus' name. In his book, Kingdoms, in conflict, Chuck Colson recalled a conversation from his White House days. One brisk December night, as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a minute, looking into the distance across the South Lawn, and said, the people really want a leader bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? I agreed. I mean someone like de Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that is exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter our lives. The parables before us this morning are spoken by Jesus in response to a criticism that is leveled at him for welcoming sinners and eating with them. It's true 
Jesus welcomed sinners and he ate with them. He welcomed sinners of all kinds. He received and spent time with the bad actors from all walks of life. And in a manner of speaking, Jesus is still doing this same thing today. Chuck Colson made reference to Jesus standing at the door. That comes from Revelation 3:20. The very words of Jesus of the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was a church, we would say, that had a nominal faith. It was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold. The members at Laodicea thought that they were rich, and they thought that they were prosperous, and they thought that they were in need of nothing. But Jesus says to them, you don't know you're poor and pitiable, wretched. They seem to have had an acceptable form of godliness, but the problem was they had no God. Jesus was not among them. And so he says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And I learned this in the King James Version. I will come into him and sup with him. The modern translations say, eat with him, right? From a word that properly means to dine or to take the evening meal. I will come into him and eat with him, he with me. So Jesus says to those who are spiritually needy, whether they know it or not, I'm outside and I'm willing to come in. In fact, I'm knocking to gain entrance. And if you'll let me into your life, I'll come in and we'll share a meal. Taking a meal together in Christ's culture was a way of cementing a friendship. To share a meal with another was to accept that person. It was to approve of that person. It was to receive that person. And so the criticism is leveled at Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How does he do that? Luke 15 tells us. Bishop J.C. Ryle said of this portion of Scripture, there is probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. So if you haven't read Luke 15 yet, then please hit the pause button now. Take a few minutes, go to your Bible, read the entire chapter. All 32 verses will be right here when you get back. I'm going to assume we've all read the whole of Luke chapter 15, so we're going to press on, and we see then that it contains three parables, and we're going to tackle them all, but tackling all three parables means that we're not going to dive deeply into the details of any one of them. Instead, we're going to focus this morning on the overall themes of the stories. Specifically, what do these parables have in common? And let's start with what's most obvious. Each of these is a story about something lost. We have a lost sheep, we have a lost coin, we have a lost son. Each is a story about something lost. Second, each entity lost is valuable to the one who lost it. I wonder if you've ever lost or misplaced something that meant a lot to you. Maybe when you were little you mislaid a favorite toy or left a stuffed animal somewhere. Or maybe by chance you left a door open and watched in horror as a cherished family pet made a dash for freedom. Perhaps you have misplaced a piece of jewelry, a wedding ring, an engagement ring, a family heirloom. Maybe you had the experience of losing some checks or some cash that you were supposed to deposit. If you have been living for more than a few years, you have probably lost something that was important to you. Now, do you remember what it felt like? Do you remember the feeling that accompanied that loss, the dread? 
the panic, the upset in your stomach. In these parables, the shepherd, the woman, and the father are invested in what they have lost. Each item is valuable to them, and its absence could not be met with a simple shrug of the shoulders and an, oh, well, these are not acceptable losses. Acceptable losses is an actual term. In retail, a certain amount of goods are going to be damaged or stolen. In agriculture, a certain percentage of crops will be destroyed by weather or eaten by animals. Sadly, even in military campaigns, a certain degree of casualties inflicted by the enemy. Tolerable, if that's what it takes to attain certain strategic goals. Accepted losses means a given number or type of loss is to be expected and that it is okay. Not to be crass here, but the shepherd has a hundred sheep. What's the big deal about one that strays? And this woman, she has 10 coins. Surely she can afford to lose one. And this dad, well, he has two sons, and one seems to be working out. So that puts his average at 500, which in baseball makes you in the Hall of Fame. It's not ideal, but it's not as bad as it could be. Our parables today are not stories of acceptable losses. Look at the lengths to which these people go to recover what is missing. The shepherd seeks. He leaves 99 to go and find one. The woman doesn't sleep. She lights a lamp. She scours her home until she finds what she's looking for. And the father, who was so poorly treated by his son, nonetheless watches and waits with hope and with a heart full of compassion and not anger. Clearly, the main characters of these stories are stricken with their loss. We must ask, who are these characters? A shepherd, a woman, and a dad? Are they three different people? Well, the answer is yes and no. They are distinct characters, but each of them represents God. So the third similarity in these parables is each provides insight into the character of God. Luke 15 contains three parables that all give us a window into the Father's heart. How exactly does God view a tax collector? How does God view the prostitute, the beggar, the addict? How does God view those who are religiously indifferent but spiritually curious? It was abundantly clear the Pharisees had no use for such people, and by extension, as representatives of God, they're sending the message that neither did he. That's just not true. So the parables of Luke 15 show us God's heart. They show us God's true disposition toward man, modeled in the example and in the words of Jesus. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. He cares for people. He has compassion for the lost. That takes us to the fourth common element in these three parables. Each of these stories is a commentary on the condition of humanity. So parables are windows into God. They are also often mirrors for us. As Chris preached a couple weeks ago, we are meant to find ourselves in the parables. 
So if God is the shepherd who seeks and the woman who sweeps and the father who waits, we are the sheep who stray. We are the coin buried in the couch. We are the prodigal who wants to live life on his own terms. We are the lost one. Now lost in this sense means lost to God, separated from him. We might know exactly where we are in terms of longitude and latitude. We might know our coordinates, our position, our location. But spiritually, because of the sin that is in us and because of the sin that we choose, humankind is lost. And what that means is that God owns, that God is father to something valuable to him that is out of place, that is not where it belongs that is apart from him. And that loss is not acceptable to God. Now, he doesn't need humanity to be complete. Acts 17, verses 24 to 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. God doesn't need anything the way that you and I do, but he grieves this separation that's caused by sin. He loves us, and he wants us back. What that means is we matter to God, even though we think that we couldn't possibly, or that we shouldn't, because of things that we have done, because of mistakes that we have made. We matter to God. And at the same time, in our natural state, our sinful condition, we are lost. This brings us to the fifth commonality, the parables in Luke 15. And this is what makes this chapter such a hopeful one. Each parable is a story of restoration. The one sheep is returned to the fold where the 99 are waiting. The one coin takes his place safely in the purse with the other nine. The son who wandered comes home and is met with a long and a warm embrace. These are all stories of something lost becoming found. So earlier I asked if you had a memory of ever losing something. How did you feel when you found it? I know you haven't possibly found everything that you've lost in your lifetime, but the odds are good that you have found some things that you lost. How did you feel when you found it? What relief? What release? What pressure off the shoulders when the lost becomes found? That's a feeling of elation that caused former slave owner turned Christian John Newton to describe God's grace as amazing. I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that is the sixth, and for our purposes today, final common theme in each of the parables. What happens when what is lost becomes found? Each of these stories ends in rejoicing. When the shepherd who has found his sheep comes home with it on his shoulder, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 religious persons who need no repentance. 
And when the woman who's lost one of her silver coins finally, after diligent searching, finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, what? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And when the father, whose son had all but said to him, I wish you were dead, sees that same son appearing on the horizon, recognizes his son's gait from afar, runs to him and wraps his arms around him, holds him and kisses him and orders up a party and says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The rejoicing in heaven when what is lost is found. So much different than the complaining, the murmuring, the grumbling of the Pharisees, what, what they are doing in response to Jesus because of the company that he keeps. And that's why Jesus is telling these stories. This is his point. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them because they are not, contrary to the self-righteous opinions of the Pharisees, they are not useless, insignificant, hopeless, acceptable losses. They are worth looking for. They are worth sharing a meal with. They are worth saving. I suspect that's why he ate with the Pharisees also, who were just as sinful and just as lost, though perhaps not so obviously, they're rather like that older brother in the latter parable who was physically in proximity to the father but spiritually bore no resemblance to him. But we're not going to get into that except to say that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them because he loves them. Because he wants them to be saved. These are his own words in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew 9.13, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. In Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is the gospel message, beloved. This is what makes the call of Christianity truly good news. That God shows his love for us that while we were yet what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners. In other words, we don't have to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to God before he'll love us or before he's willing to accept us. We can never be good enough for God. We don't have to be. That's the good news. Because Jesus was. So if you are struggling today with a sense of unworthiness or frustration at not being able to get to the level where you think God might give you a look or trapped in a particular pattern of sin that you know does not please Him or you've come to the end of doing things your own way and you're willing to come home and you're willing to try it God's way but you're not sure if you can or you're not sure if you should you're not even sure that you would be allowed 
take to heart these words from the old Puritan, John Bunyan, who wrote, This therefore should encourage them that for the present cannot stand, but that do fly before their guilt, them that feel no help nor stay, but that go as to their thinking every day by the power of temptation driven yet farther off from God and from the hope of obtaining of his mercy to their salvation. Poor creature, I will not now ask thee how thou camest into this condition or how long this has been thy state, but I will say before thee, and prithee hear me, O the length of the saving arm of God. As yet thou art within the reach thereof, do not thou go about to measure arms with God, as some good men are apart to do. I mean, do not thou conclude that because thou canst not reach God by thy short stump, therefore he cannot reach thee with his long arm. The prophet Isaiah declares, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. The long arm of God is seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who reaches down into this world to draw us to himself. The very Son of God became a man and lived among us to show us who God is and what God is really like. He came preaching and showing the truth of God's love, with a message to all that God loves you. That was a message he would not only speak, but one that he would back up with his life. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is sin that makes us lost. It is sin that has us out of place. It is sin that separates us from God. And Jesus took that sin on himself. He, the one whom the scriptures say was without sin, became sin for us. He died in our place as a substitute for our wrongdoings. He paid the price for our transgressions with his own blood. He canceled our debt by his death on the cross so that all who look to him by faith believing might be forgiven and inherit the gift of eternal life. Jesus is not only a friend to sinners, he is the Savior of sinners. Does that not raise the qualification and the stakes of the Christ who stands knocking on the door of your heart, who will enter in and share a meal with you if you let him? Heaven rejoices when the lost is found. And so, Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. Welcomes. The word means to admit, to receive, to give access to. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so the old hymn goes, sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all. Who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall. Sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. Christ receiveth sinful men. Good thing, isn't it? Because that's the only kind there are. 
you might bear with me for a few moments of reflection and response. I have some questions for you. Have you opened the door of your heart to Christ, who stands knocking? Have you given your life to him who made you, who loves you, and who died for you, to give you eternal life? If you have not, why not? And if you have not, will you? What is required is that you acknowledge your lostness, that you acknowledge your sin, that you repent, which is a biblical word that means to turn from it. Turn from your sin and turn towards God, like that prodigal son who left his life in the pig slop and the pigsty to come home. As one commentator put it, although Jesus reproved their sins, yet many of them acknowledged that he was right. They took sides with Christ against themselves. In true repentance, they acknowledged him as Lord. Wherever Jesus found people who were willing to acknowledge their sin, he gravitated toward them and bestowed spiritual help and blessing upon them. Well, if you have opened the door of your heart to Jesus Christ today, you can say, yes, I'm among those counted saved. And the proper response for you to Luke chapter 15 is first and foremost praise. Praise the Lord that you have been found. Praise the Lord that he allowed you, like that prodigal son, to come to your senses and know enough to turn to God. Praise God that you are found. I have some questions for you as well. If Christ receives sinful men, who do you receive? Who are you welcoming? And in what spirit are you welcoming them? Who are you breaking bread with? If we truly intend to follow Jesus, where would he lead us in this matter? Well, hopefully you have received somehow through the magic of technology, which always escapes me, some sort of order of worship that might direct you to a song to sing along with other words. And also, you would find some links to a couple of resources, some excellent uh, music and uh, that goes along with the message this morning. So I'd encourage you to tap into that. And probably, again, I don't know how this happens, but probably somebody will post something on Facebook that could even make this easier for you. Uh, it's hard not to be with you. It's uh, a little eerie preaching to an empty congregation, save Tim Bland, who's willing to come in here and record this. Something that I said I would never do, and I've certainly learned that you never say never in a pandemic. I guess this amounts to something called uh, something is better than nothing. It perhaps helps us all to long for the day when we will be together in this sanctuary worshiping the Lord. Miss you. Forward to seeing you soon.